Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800 247 3051. 800 247 3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. But the fact that both the names are mentioned shows in Matthew 1, shows an emphasis to call out these twins in Matthew 1.3. Matthew 1.3, Judas begat Ferris and Zara of Tamar. Tamar becomes the first Gentile in the lineage of the Lord. This is very unusual because Tamar is the wife, Tamar is the woman, Tamar is the mother, There are no wives, there are no mothers that are typically mentioned in a person's lineage, in the lineage of the Lord. There are no women. There are no women mentioned, except for Tamar. Except for Tamar and three others. These are the only women that are mentioned in the lineage of the Lord in Matthew 1. And all of these women were Gentiles, and there was something scandalous about all of them. The first scandal was here with Tamar as these boys were the result of incest. The second mention of a Gentile in the lineage of the Lord is in Matthew 1.5. Matthew 1.5. It says, Solomon, Solomon begat Boaz of Rahab. So Rahab is the mother of Boaz, and the scandal with Rahab was that she was a harlot. She was a prostitute from Jericho that hid the spies. Then the third mention of O Gentile women, and of course we've been studying that, in Matthew 1.5, Matthew 1.5, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse, of course, then begat David, King David. So Ruth is the grandmother of King David, and the scandal with Ruth was that she was a Moabitess, which means that she was from the people that caused Israel to commit fornication. And that brought judgment of God on Israel. All these things are sexual sins. And the fourth mention of a Gentile woman in the lineage of the Lord is in Matthew 1.6, Matthew 1.6. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. So Bathsheba is the mother of King Solomon. And And of course, we all know the scandal surrounding Bathsheba is that she was the wife of Urias. So King David raped Bathsheba, then murdered her husband, which resulted in the death of their child, and the sword never left David's family, as I mentioned, resulting in the rape of his daughter by his son. So there's the only four women that are mentioned in the lineage of the Lord, all Gentiles, and the histories surrounding them are scandalous. How could this be? How could it be that the Savior of the world descended from Tamar, a Canaanite with an incense-stained 
uh, history between Judah and Tamar, a union like that. How could it be that the Savior of the world should descend from Rahab, who was a Canaanite from Jericho, who had been a prostitute? How could it be that the Savior of the world should descend from Ruth, whose very people were cursed for their idolatry and fornication? How could it be that the Savior of the world should descend from Bathsheba, who was a Hittite, and the union that started with her rape and the murder of her husband. How could this be? These are the only four Old Testament women all in the lineage of the Lord, all Gentiles called out specifically in Matthew in the lineage of the Lord, the lineage of the Savior of the world. And their shamefulness is far from covered up. It's called out. It's called out. As we see in the case of Tamar, that the name of the other twin, Zara, who wasn't even a part of the lineage. He's named out. He's called out. Just so we would be especially reminded of the incense that took place here that generated these twins. And in the case of Bathsheba, where it calls out Bathsheba in Matthew 1.6, it, t- it says, her that had been the wife of Uriah. So when the name of her murdered husband, Uriah, is called out, That brings right out in front of us the fact that Bathsheba was raped and forced to commit adultery and that her husband was murdered. I mean, with such shamefulness of these backgrounds, why weren't they kept a secret from being in the lineage of the Lord? Why does the Bible go to such lengths to promote all of this by calling them out specifically as in the lineage of the Lord? There's only one reason. There's only one reason, and that's because God wants to show us that God is the God of salvation, forgiveness, and God takes away all the guilt and the curse that rests upon that guilt by forgiving sins. And our account here with Tamar is the first account of an incestuous union between a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law where the father-in-law thought the daughter-in-law was a prostitute. The fact that God chose for this child, Ferris, from this union, that he should be in the lineage of the Savior of the world, shows us clearly that God is not trying to forever shame Judah, but by choosing that this child should be in the Lord's lineage, it shows us just how much God loves to pardon the sinner. He loves to save from sins. He loves to remove guilt. He loves to make a new person in Jehovah Jesus. He loves all that. So why do this? Why do this, bring all this out? Why to go to such lengths to call out specifically in the lineage of the Lord? By calling out this incest and the other scandals in the lineage of the Lord, he wants to show us no one should be proud of his own righteousness. By calling out this incense and all these scandals here in the lineage, He wants to show us also no one should ever despair of being accepted by God because because of the sins that he has repented of. See, this is very important. When he calls out this incest and he calls out all these scandals, God is not trying to beat sinners over the head with a baseball bat. By calling out this incest and these other scandals, it's actually a humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his lineage is coming from this incest between Judah and Tamar and other, all these scandals. Just think of the grace of God and how Levi, who murdered the Shechemites, Levi should become the priest. 
And Judah, who commits incest with Tamar, from him should descend kings and the Messiah from that union. I mean, how is that for the grace of God? And that's, that's what makes God's grace amazing grace. All right, so now we saw how chapter 38 started with a downhill course with Judah. Very bad. It actually started off that way in, in verse 1. Judah went down from his brethren. And when you look at chapters 37 and 38 together, it's very much a downhill course. It's a very bad picture. It's a very dark picture. Chapter 37 appears is that Joseph is lost in Egypt, and he'll never see him again. In chapter 38, it appears as though Judah is lost in Canaan and will never see him again. And so Satan saw, Satan took special note, that when a people went into serious sexual sins, as Sodom and Gomorrah did, that God destroyed that whole people of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual immorality. So Satan has planned for Judah to get into a sexual immorality so he can be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was the course that Judah was heading down. And since Judah, since from Judah would come the savior of the world and the crusher of Satan's head, the destruction of Judah through this sexual immorality was a very high priority for Satan. And that was the course that we're started here on chapter 38. But God intervened through a public shaming, through a public acknowledgement, which came at the, which coming now at the end of the chapter. And the last word in this chapter 38 is the name of the other twin, Zara. And that means rising, rising of the light. That name is so important because that is, that is what we're seeing now with the repentance of Judah. It's a rising up of Judah from his sin. And that's also symbolic of the Jewish people. I mean, this was so important what Simeon the priest said in the temple when he held the baby Jesus in his hands and as if it was he was holding all the Jewish people in his hands, all of Israel in his hands when he said in Luke 2.34, Luke 2.34, and Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel for a sign which shall be spoken against. So as for the Jewish people, their history will be written like this. Fall of all, rise of many. Fall of all, rise of many. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ fell in death and then was raised in life through the resurrection, so the history of the Jewish people were written as a fall and a rising again. This is all what Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones was all about in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 37, 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the, in, in the spirit of the Lord, set me in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. Behold, there were very many in the open valley and they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. All this to say is that God's not finished with the Jewish people. As he said in Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, Romans 11.1, 1, 
hath God cast away his people. God forbid. In Romans eleven twenty six, Romans eleven twenty six. So all Israel, all the Jewish people, all Israel shall be saved. That is, it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, which will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. But God sees that special care is going to be needed for the Jewish people. I mean, he's already gotten a good look at what the danger that they're in. And he's seen there, you know, this people has got to be separated from the surrounding people. Otherwise, what we've seen in chapter 38 with Judah, the Jewish people are just going to be destroyed by intermingling with all these heathen people. So God has a remedy. God says, I've got a solution for that. And his remedy to prevent this is that he's going to remove his people to another land called Egypt, and they'll be totally isolated in that land in a place called Goshen, where they're not going to intermingle with the Egyptians, and that they're going to become slaves. And when they leave, the only Egyptians who will intermingle and marry with them will be Egyptians who become converted to Jehovah Jesus. And then, so this is how chapter 38 ends, with the hope of the rising again of Judah, of the Jewish people, seen as a prophecy in the naming of this other twin, Zara, means rising. Okay. So that's how we leave chapter 38. We now begin chapter 39, and we take up the history of Joseph. Now we're switching out of Joseph when it says, and Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which he, which he had brought down thither. So these first words in this first verse here are so very important. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. In fact, the power of this word, of this, these words, comes out in that one word, brought. It's very expressive. It's a very powerful word in this verse because it's brought is showing us. Brought is not went. It doesn't say, and Joseph went down to Egypt. The verse does not say he went down to Egypt. It says he was brought to Egypt. And that word brought is showing us just how much Joseph did not want to go to Egypt, but he was brought to Egypt. When it says Joseph was brought to Egypt, it's emphasizing he was brought to Egypt against his will. He's being brought down to Egypt with so much against his will that it is as if he was kidnapped and taken somewhere, taken down to Egypt, which is exactly how Joseph explains how he ended up in Egypt to his fellow prisoner in Genesis 40, verse 15, Genesis 40, verse 15, when he said to him, I indeed was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. This word brought in the verse 1 expresses how he was. He felt he was stolen away. It was against his will that he was in Egypt. It describes, and what's so interesting about this word brought is that we can put ourselves in there in every situation in our lives when we are brought down to a place we don't want to be in. That's how we feel That's how we feel when we are brought to a place against our will, like we've been brought down to Egypt. We feel like we've been brought down to a health condition we don't want to be in. I know what that feels like. I had that exact feeling when I had cancer. And I would sit there, and I think a year before, I didn't have cancer. And I just would like to go back. I'd like to go back to there. I was brought down. I was stolen away to cancer, just like Joseph was brought down. I was brought down to cancer. And Joseph had those memories, 
being back home with his father and wanted to be back there instead of having been brought down to Egypt when I had cancer, laying on the bed, enduring the chemotherapy, barely able to get up and make it to the bathroom. And I'd lay there in bed and I remember how, boy, just a few months ago, I was in Ethiopia, I was in Ghana, I was in Japan, I was in the Philippines. I wish I could be back there instead of brought down to Egypt. But just like God blessed Joseph in Egypt, God blessed me in the cancer. We feel brought down to Egypt when a loved one dies. And we remember how sweet it was when that person was alive. I remember when my wife for 44 years died and I felt like I was brought down to Egypt. I was against my will with her death. I thought about how when we were young, how we played on the hills of Western College next to Miami University or on the beaches of Sardinia. And I like Joseph, I felt that I was brought down to Egypt. I was brought down with my wife's death. But just like God blessed Joseph in Egypt, God has blessed me since my wife died. So what we see in these first words of verse 1, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. It describes every situation in our lives when we are brought to a place we don't want to be in. As a slave being brought down to Egypt, Joseph had no power to change anything in his life. He was a slave. He was owned by another. And these words in verse 1, Joseph was brought down to Egypt, expresses how Joseph had no power to change anything in his life. That's why these words are so important to us, because they describe when we're put in a position in life when we don't have any power to change anything, when a situation it's not our choice, and we have no control. We have been brought down to Egypt. Now, we read when we read this, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Keep in mind that Joseph, who he was, he was the great-grandson of Abraham. And he still found himself in this place in his life, that he didn't choose to be there, he didn't want to be there, he had no power to change it. But he was a great-grandson of the man who was told he was going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. How's that possible? So our question is, what are we to do when we find ourselves like Joseph did, brought down to Egypt into a place in our life where we absolutely do not want to be. The answer comes in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, when it says, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This is where the importance of these words, in all thy ways, comes in. Not just in some of the ways, or for those ways where we want to be in life. You know, like the contemporary song that goes, Blessed be your name, in the land that is plentiful, where the streams of abundance flow, when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all that it should be. But all our ways means when we are brought down to Egypt, it includes that. When we're brought down to Egypt in a place we don't want to be, that's part of all of our ways. And we're in the places where the same song goes on and describes when I'm found in the desert place, when the darkness closes in, on the road marked with suffering, and there's pain in the offering. See, those are part of, those are included also in all our ways that we have to acknowledge the Lord. And to acknowledge the Lord when we are like Joseph, brought down to Egypt, means to say and believe that God has sent me where I didn't want to go. That's what it means to acknowledge God. Now, just think in the context of Joseph. Just think of Joseph. 
how would he have acknowledged the Lord when all of his ways included that he was brought down to being in the pit with no water in the desert? I mean, just think of how Joseph would have acknowledged the Lord when all his ways included being brought down to being a slave, ordered around by the Midianites and being brought down to Egypt. I mean, just think about Joseph would have acknowledged the Lord when all his ways included being in the process of being sold as a slave in the slave market of Egypt, like a piece of meat that's sold in the market. I mean, just think of this, how Joseph would have acknowledged the Lord when all his ways included when he was where he did not want to be and when he had no power to change it, how would Joseph have acknowledged the Lord in each one of those ways where he didn't want to be? What does it mean to acknowledge God? To acknowledge God means to see God's hand in each one of these being brought down to Egypt situations in life. For me, I had cancer. I acknowledged God by imagining that in heaven, God took out a prescription pad and wrote on it, mm, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for, that's what I order for Tom. <laughs> that's what I missed. That's just what he needs. Yeah. And to acknowledge God means also to confide in God, to talk to him in each of these situations, to be, well, when you're being brought down to Egypt, those situations of life. To acknowledge God means to be flexible in life, not so stiff. You know, we had a speaker at the last Christmas Under the Stars at the Creation and Earth History Museum, and he said there's two types of Christians in life. There's the one Christian who says, is it over yet? <laughs> you know, And there's the next Christian who says, what's next? What's next? See? To be flexible in life is to be the what's next Christian and to see each brought down to Egypt situation. That's a new adventure. That's a new challenge. That's a new opportunity to see God's blessing. I wonder sometimes if God doesn't just give up and bring Christians home to heaven because they've made their lives so predictable and so inflexible and they've guarded so that he can't use them anymore on earth, then he might as well just stamp on those lives unusable and sadly just say, okay, I got to take them off the earth because I can't use them anymore. They're playing it too safe. That's become their life motto, playing it safe. No Christian should ever order their lives where they've done everything to avoid those being brought down to Egypt situations in life. Because that's when God used Joseph the most when he was brought down to Egypt. And that's when God will use us the most when we're brought down to Egypt. So to acknowledge God means to see ourselves as being sent on an exciting new mission when we are in those being brought down to Egypt times of our lives. As Joseph said about it in Genesis, the last chapter, Genesis 50, verse 20, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good, meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph said that when he was in that brought down to Egypt time in his life, that God sent him there to save much people alive. That's what it means to acknowledge God in all thy ways. That's what it meant for Joseph to acknowledge God in all of Joseph's ways. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free 
at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. You're invited to the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California for the third annual Taste of Creation Benefit Dinner and Silent Auction. It's Saturday, June 3rd at 6.30 p.m. This benefit dinner is in support of the Light and Life Foundation Ministries that encompass the Creation and Earth History Museum, Friendship with God Radio Program, and Israel Restoration Ministries. Come experience gourmet and unique local restaurant foods, and we'll have Bible teacher Tom Cantor from the Friendship with God Radio Program speaking, along with musical performances by the De Lamont Strings. We'll have an amazing night of silent and live auction items, including tailored guitars, vacation getaways, and other exciting auction items. So if you'd like to attend this event, or if you're a local business or person that would like to donate and sponsor a product or service in support of the Creation Museum auction on Saturday, June 3rd at 6.30 p.m., then call us with your support or to reserve your seat. 619-599-1104. That's 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org. creationsd.org. creationsd.org.